No uterus, no opinion. Heard that one before? Abortion advocates and crazies have long said that men have to shut up and be silent on the issue of abortion. You see, we don't have uteruses. Well, a dangerous thing, of course, to assume in the age of Bruce Jenner. But real men don't turn a blind eye to the victimization of women and children. They help protect them <laughs> by stepping up, acting like a man, fighting the evil that seeks to prey on the vulnerable. So we will debunk this sexist argument examine the pathetic state of the modern man, and discuss how and why men should engage. I'm Seth Gruber, and this is Unaborted. Welcome to the show today. Thank you guys for tuning in. We're revamping a very old episode, episode eight, believe it or not, of Unaborted with Seth Gruber way back in 2019 in the first couple months of the show. And I think I'm going to revamp and actually turn this into a talk as well because I think this is a message that the country and men need in particular in our country because so many of the issues we're facing, if not all of them today, are not just because of an absence and silent church, but also because of absent and silent men, or what I will call men without chests. And nowhere are chestless men more frequent and full than in the pro-choice movement. Being pro-choice just makes you a man <clears throat> without a chest. And so we're going to dive into and talk about a lot of these ideas because when men fulfill their role and calling as protectors, defenders, and stewards, entire countries and civilizations change. And of course, entire families change. All of this starts at the local level. You recall years ago, even Barack Obama, right? Someone who is about as much of a pal of the culture of death and the LGBTQIA LMNOP movement as possible used to mourn and publicly discuss how so many of the issues our country were facing, particularly in black America, were coming from a absence of fathers in the home. And he's publicly shared his own struggle and journey not knowing his father. There's a recognition of this in the culture, even to some extent on the left, that when fathers and men are absent, silent, and chestless, Everything else decays. Everything else falls apart. And of course, this comes back to the natural order of things, the natural law tradition, the fact that God made things a certain way. He made people different and genders different for a certain reason. And if there's a reason, you should figure out what that reason is and try to live in it because you'll flourish if you fulfill your role and purpose of things, right? This is called teleology, right, or telos. What is the purpose of something? And if you can figure that out and live in it, you, your family, and therefore civilization will flourish. Well, when you don't fulfill your purpose, um, then you won't flourish and, and, and uh, all of society will decay because of it. And so that's why we need to talk about all of this. But we've been hearing this attack on men for decades, haven't we? No uterus, no opinion. So I want to dive into, firstly, this, this silly, stupid argument and then get into the role of men. But can we just start with debunking this debased stupid, asinine, and sexist argument, shall we? If that's true, this is very interesting, right? If the pro-abortion movement actually believes that men should be silent because it's her body, her choice, and therefore only women should have a voice on abortion, then I guess we should overturn Roe versus Wade immediately because in 1973, guess how many men were on the Supreme Court? 
all of them when they ruled 7-2 to uphold a woman's right to pay a hitman to kill her child. Well, those men didn't have uteruses. They need to shut up too. But then every pro-choicer you say that to, what do they say? I'm actually very grateful for the seven men in 1973 that upheld a woman's natural right to abortion, blah, 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 right? Just the euphemisms of the culture of death. Well, so what they really mean is that pro-life men should shut up, but they love it when pro-choice men speak up. So it's not actually about gender, is it? It's about ideological uniformity. You better recite their freaking creeds. You recite their religious texts. And if you don't, you'll be treated as a heretic of their regime. So they just wield the sexist argument to silence men who are pro-life, not men who are pro-choice. And of course, there's, there's a ideological snobbery to this, isn't there? Because what about pro-choice men? They're fine with that. What about pro-life women? How do they treat uh, Melissa Odin and Lila Rose and Stephanie Gray and Kristen Hawkins and uh, Ali Beth Stuckey and other major pro-life women who contend for the life of the pre-born in the public square? They treat them like dog poo-poo. <laughs> they treat them horribly. They demean them. They call them a traitor to their own gender. But I was just told that it's her body, her choice, therefore her voice. We need to elevate the voices of women and all men should shut up. But they don't care about elevating the voices of pro-life women. They demean those women just as much as they demean pro-life men. So it's actually just about ideological uniformity. I hope you see that. But this, this argument of no uterus, no opinion begs the question. Because if you have to shut up on abortion because you're a man and the abortion issue only involves women, if you exclude the pre-born males, uh, then therefore should women be silent when men rape little boys? Let's apply that same type of gendered attack against the woke feminist activist who majored in lesbian dance theory at UC Berkeley and is part of the Believe All Women attack against Harvey Weinstein. Well, what if Harvey Weinstein was raping eight-year-old little boys? then therefore we need to silence the voices of feminist activist women because you know what? That issue only involves boys. It only involves males. So if a 40-year-old male is abusing younger males, that's only an issue for those with male genitalia. So the women need to be silent because you know what? They're not phallic holders, right? They're not phallic bearers. And so it's only an issue for the boys to discuss. No, of course not. And if I said that to a purple-haired feminist who tries to throw men in prison who rape people, by the way, God bless them, right? That's great. Yes, let's throw rapist men in prison. But if I were to say that to a woman, she'd probably label me a sexist. And rightly so. That would be a very sexist thing for me to say. But when they say that to men to tell us to shut up, when women pay a hitman to kill their unborn child, then somehow that's just speaking truth to power. Uh, no, I don't think so. Let's continue debunking this stupid argument. Should only generals be allowed to discuss the morality of war? Because, you know, they're the ones making the decisions, right? And their, their decisions are not affecting um, the, the pro-choice women, right? And, and so if only women can discuss abortion because their decisions... They're the only ones that can make the decisions in regard to abortion. Then I guess only generals should be allowed to discuss the morality of war because woke pro-choice women, 
they don't have the experience and authority to speak to moral questions of war. Just like apparently men don't have the gendered or moral authority to speak to women's issue like abortion. But of course, nobody actually believes this. Nobody actually believes that only if you have a direct experience or authority in a certain decision or matter should you be able to discuss your thoughts on that issue publicly. So this is just a gender-based sexist argument that treats men and their perspectives as less than based purely upon their gender. It dehumanizes men down to their thoughts rather than, or down to their genitalia, rather than down to their thoughts, their ideas, their worldview, what they have to offer. And if I were to dehumanize a woman purely down to her genitalia, I would again be labeled as a sexist. Frank Beckwith, a pro-life philosopher and Christian, puts this beautifully. He says, arguments don't have sexual organs. <laughs> so if I offer an argument as to why I'm pro-life and why I think everyone should be pro-life, and your response is, uh, yeah, but you have a penis, uh, then you're a sexist. You have, you have reduced my entire person and thoughts on a given debate down to my genitalia. Uh, that's sexism by any definition. And there's also the nonsense of reproduction, right? There's the nonsense of the reproductive argument to this sexist attack because it takes two to tango, right? <laughs> it takes two to tango. Why should men have no say in whether their unborn son or daughter is killed? If they should have a say in whether their born son or daughter is killed by their wife or girlfriend, certainly they should have that same authority to protect the life of their unborn child because the child's dignity and rights and personhood are not dependent on their location. Lastly, what if the tables were turned and it was men who carried children and the LGBTQ LMNOP movement had their wishes fulfilled and men actually had uteruses? In that case, should mothers have zero say in whether the father arranges to have her child dismembered? Something tells me that if we somehow in some disgusting leftist utopia were able to take out some of men's intestines who thought they, they were women and put in artificial uteruses and then through IVF put an unborn baby inside of the men's artificial uterus and then he decided to get an abortion against the wishes of his wife, I guess, who's still a female, who's staying with this guy who thinks he's a female, something tells me that the women's movement would declare that that woman should have a say because that child in his artificial uterus was created with her eggs and, you know, she has a right to contend for the life of that child too. <laughs> she wants to be a mother. This is about reproductive freedom and half of that child was reproduced by her. Oh, you mean just like half of every baby in every woman's womb is, is, is half of the father who has had all of his authority and voice removed in the public and legal debate over abortion. <laughs> okay, so anyways, no uterus, no opinion is just a classic sexist attack against men to silence them because they really only want to silence pro-life voices. But what is the role of men, right? I mean, this is a fundamental question, a foundational question in a society that can't even answer the question, what is a man? So what is the role of men? We all understand that parents are important, right? The role of a father is just as important as the role of a mother. I know that that's taboo. I know you're not allowed to say that anymore. But all of the studies and research have bear this out. And anytime you're in the natural law tradition, anytime you're on the side of natural law, you will be on the right side of history, okay? And ideally, we want both married to each other and raising their biological children. That has always been, historically, and based off of the best research, the way that leads to the best flourishing and protection 
of the posterity, of the next generation. Again, that classic line of Obama acknowledging that as well. Ryan Anderson from the Heritage Foundation, who wrote a phenomenal book called Marriage, What It Is, Why It Matters, and the Consequences of Redefining It. This was actually an article he wrote based off of a larger book he wrote. And Ryan Anderson at the Heritage Foundation has, has done an incredible job um, defending the historical and really only true institution of marriage, which is a man and a woman. And uh, in this article, he cites a study published by the left-leaning research institution called Child Trends. Okay, so this is not a conservative source. Child Trends found that, quote, it is not simply the presence of two parents, but the presence of two biological parents that seems to support children's development. Oh, shocker. Now, again, the left used to acknowledge this, okay? It's only recently that they won't anymore. They continue and say, research clearly demonstrates that family structure matters for children. And the family structure that helps children the most is a family headed by two biological parents, okay, that would mean a man and a woman, in a low-conflict marriage. Children in single-parent families, children born to unmarried mothers, and children in step-families or cohabiting relationships face higher risks of poor outcomes. There is thus value for children in promoting strong, stable marriages between biological parents. Look at that. That's from the left-leaning research institution Child Trend. So the culture has acknowledged this for the long time. Until when? Until LGBTQILLMNOP and the left began to implement what they've always wanted, which is to liberate ourselves from human nature, right? To say that we can liberate ourselves even from the constraints upon human nature, which is, what are those constraints? That there's men and there's women, <laughs> right? And, and only women can bear babies, and therefore children have a natural right to be raised by the two individuals responsible for their existence. What we were talking about last week with Katie Faust of Them Before Us. It was only once the left realized that they had a victim class the LGBTQ movement, that they could present themselves as the savior to by saying, yes, you can have a right to children. You can switch genders. You do have a right as two gay men or two gay women to be able to, to create children in labs through one person's egg and another person's sp sperm and renting that woman's womb and denying them their birth mother or their biological mother and father or both and raise them. And th the children won't be hurt at all because you have a right to your desires for parenting. It's only once that victim class became a politically opportune uh, a political opportunity for the left to pander to that they began ignoring the research that they had always acknowledged was real, which is that children fare best when raised by their married biological parents in a low-conflict marriage and home. So we know that parents matter, and we know that fathers matter. And this is just one of many sort of um, studies that I could cite to you that showed that it's not simply the presence of two parents, like a mother and a mother, but the presence of two married biological parents, which means that mothers and fathers offer something different, which means fathers matter. If a man's role as a father to his children matters after they're born, huh? which is what the study just acknowledged, then it is perfectly reasonable to argue that his role matters just as much before his child is born. Yeah? And when children learn that their father tried to pressure their mother to get an abortion and she didn't, and then they raised the child and he was glad that he didn't kill his child. When children learn that, it's traumatic for them. Why? Because a father's presence 
matters even when his child is unborn. This should be self-evident to anyone who acknowledges natural rights. So why should men care? Let's talk about this. In a time where men are just told, fulfill your every desire, right? If it feels good, do it, right? If you're addicted to porn, that's fine. Go satisfy yourself. That way you won't be as much of a, tos a toxic man because you'll be freeing yourself of these urges and these passions and just pursue every desire. It's fine. In a culture that encourages Tinder dating, and one night stands and liberty mistaken or libertinism mistaken for liberty. Why should men care? Well, I think men should actually care for selfish reasons. Let me start with that. Rather than starting with the fact that you should care for unselfish reasons because you freaking created that child and you slept with her and now you've developed soul ties with her and you should raise that child that you created with her and you should man up, be a man. Let me actually start with the selfish reason the purely selfish and individualistic reason why men should care about children, why men should care about raising children and not aborting their children. You should care for your own good. Here's what I mean. A 2012 study found an interesting thing that you'll know is self-evident if you're a Christian and pro-lifer. Psychologists from UC Riverside, Stanford, and the University of British Columbia found that parents experience greater happiness and meaning in life than non-parents. No, duh. <laughs> Again, this is something you think is self-evident, but in the society, this is something that has been lost upon them. Why? Why do we know this? Because we have young men and young women waiting longer than any other time in American history to get married. And even after they get married, to have kids. It's not like young people are having kids as soon as they get married. It's, this is, we are now having the oldest generation of, of married families and married parents because of how long they're waiting to get married and have kids. Why? Because they think that their greatest happiness and self-fulfillment is found in the widget factory, is found at the investment firm, is found at crushing it and cashing checks and breaking necks and getting rich because I have to be stable and make sure that I can actually financially support a child rather than rushing into the blessing of, of parenthood and family and rolling with the punches, right? And recognizing that you will rise to the occasion when you recognize that you have to because you have children dependent upon you. And so this study from UC Riverside, Stanford, and the University of British Columbia in 2012 found that parents experience greater happiness and meaning in life than non-parents. Yes, duh, because it's your posterity, because it's a way to sort of achieve immortality in a physical sense, not an eternal sense. Only Christ can provide that. But in the Bible and in, in sort of the Roman culture in the first century and even prior, um, having children was seen as a way to sort of live forever, to extend your name, right, in your heritage. And that's why barrenness was seen as a curse. Not having children was seen as a curse. Whereas today, we try to pursue that curse and delay having children as long as possible. So you should care about children, about the unborn, and about families for selfish reasons, because you'll be happier and you'll experience more meaning. Well, also, you should care because you were made to care, right? Men are more physical than women, both sexually and muscularly and physically. And that's, that there's a reason for that, right? Once again, if you're in the natural law tradition, and really if you're in the self-evident tradition of looking around reality and kind of using your faculties of reason to come to sort of certain conclusions about the physical world. <laughs> if you look at a man who is 30 years old and 
works out and stays fairly fit, and you look at a 30-year-old woman who kind of does the same, do they look the same? Are they equally strong? No, right? Men are generally larger and stronger than women. So there's, you always have to ask, why is something a certain way? G.K. Chesterton once said this, right? He said, if you come into a field and you find a gate in the middle of the field, Rather than tearing it down because it seems so silly that there's a gate in the middle of a field, maybe you should ask why it's there and figure that out first, right? So when you observe the natural world, you should ask why are things this way, right? And if things are a certain way and things sort of evidence uh, a, a certain order and coherency to them, of course, in the natural law tradition, you ask the question, who made this this way? Oh, God himself. And so why is it this way? Well, because men were made to protect those more vulnerable and to fight evil. This is why men have always gone to war and not women, despite the Biden administration and these disgusting Democrats who are trying to literally uh, implement a draft for women to send women to die for men so that they can enjoy American liberties and freedoms that they're not willing to die for. It's disgusting. That passion, strength, and drive can be used for horrible things or wonderful things. We know this about men. This is what the left calls toxic masculinity, right? Yes, yes, men can be incredible degenerates. They can also be incredible heroes. Like humans in general, men tend to be pendulum human beings, right? We swing from one extreme to the other, and in, if you exercise virtue, right, and you put parameters and constraints on your desires, and you submit those to Christ, you can find that middle, right, rather than swinging to one pendulum extreme, and in that middle, you will be a freaking warrior. You will be a gladiator because you'll know how to temper your more extreme um, elements and also cha channel them into protecting the vulnerable. So I want to ask men this question. What breaks your heart and boils your blood? What gets you riled up and pissed? If you ask most men, even degenerates, right? Even men who are looking at porn every night, who are sleeping around, right? Who have probably paid for aborting some of their children. I'm, I'm not talking about like upright, phenomenal, morally strong men. I'm talking about just your, your general degenerate, probably 20-year-old living in San Francisco or New York, okay? <laughs> what breaks your heart and boils your blood? Even for men like that who are not exercising virtue or constraining vice, most of them, if you tell them about sex trafficking of eight-year-olds, if you tell them about child slavery, if you tell them about physically abusive husbands who beat the living pulp out of their children and wives, if you tell them about rapacious men who rape little babies and children, you could probably sign that guy up right then onto a, <laughs> onto a uh, militia volunteer list of men who are willing to try to go take out these men and take justice into their own hands. You could probably talk him into doing that. Now, you shouldn't. You should go through the, the law, right, and the police, and you, should, you shouldn't just become a vigilante um, as long as we have a legal system that enables us to execute justice. Um, but you could probably get him to sign up for that, couldn't you? He would be like, yeah, let's go kill some rapists. And this would be your normal degenerate guy who just fulfills his every wish and desire. So listen, here's the message for men today for whom injustice pisses them off and gets them ready and rally to fight on behalf of those who can't defend themselves. Here it is. Abortion is wrong for the same reasons you believe those other things are wrong. Namely, that innocent little children who can't defend themselves are dehumanized and treated as sexual idols or abuse items for degenerate men. It's wrong for the same reasons. It does not matter that that child is located six inches away or is a little more dependent than the infant. In fact, because the child in the womb is more dependent is the very reason why you should be more committed to their protection. 
because they're even more dependent than the infant or the toddler who is abused. And if you're a man who sleeps around creating unborn children, you have not just a masculine duty, you have a parental familial duty to the child that you helped create. So here's a thought experiment for the men in America. What if you saw someone beating a toddler or a baby? What if you walked by and you saw someone just beating the pulp out of a little toddler on the side of the street or his own baby? What would you do? You would beat the living pulp out of that guy. You would make sure that his fist and his hands were so broken, he would not be able to make a fist again, right? And what if it was your baby? What if you came into your living room and the babysitter that you thought you trusted was beating your children? Yeah, that babysitter would be lucky if he or she was still alive by the time you were done with them, right? Exactly. Well, what if it's a baby in the womb who has their limbs ripped off their body? How could that just suddenly become reproductive justice because a child is located six inches away? Listen, man, pro-life is simply the radical idea that the unborn child in your wife's, girlfriend's, or your fling's womb, or stranger's womb, is just as deserving of your protection and defense as your toddler would be. Why? Because the right to life is a natural right. What's a natural right? It's a right that we have because we're human. When do we become human? The moment of conception. Therefore, a human being's right to life does not come from their location, their level of development, or their dependency. It comes from their humanity, which begins at the moment of conception. So where are the men, huh? That's the question. Where are the men? We know that many women who reject abortion and choose life for their unborn child do so alone. We know this. Many women who choose to not get an abortion, and they do choose life, they do so completely alone and abandoned by the man who helped create that child. Usually consensually, right? Because you know that abortions that, that occur because of rape are less than 1% of the annual abortions. So, and then there's heroic women who have been raped and gotten pregnant and chosen life for their child. But usually it's consensually, and it's a degenerate man who completely abandons his parental duties. So let's look at some statistics from the CDC and US Census Bureau just to really get down into the stats here. They're very simple, but they're tragic. They're tragic. Why are they tragic? Because the men are gone. Because the men are men without chests, to cite C.S. Lewis. The US Census Bureau and CDC um, cite statistics on the single mother guide or the website Single Mother Guide reports on CDC and UC, US Census Bureau statistics compiling them, and they report that four out of 10 children were born to unwed mothers. One in four children under the age of 18 of a total of about 16.4 million are being raised without a father. And out of about 11 million single parent families with children under the age of 18, more than 80% were headed by single mothers. This is, this is tragic. This is horrible. Where are the men? With, uh, out of 11 million single-parent families, more than 80% were headed by single mothers. And one in four children under the age of 18 are being raised without a father. And four out of 10 children were born to unwed mothers. Here's the point. When men no longer take fathering their born children seriously, they won't take fathering their unborn children seriously. If you can't see your duty to be there and protect the natural right of your child to their father after they're born, how could we expect you to take fathering your unborn children seriously? 
right? If you can't understand the value of parenthood outside the womb when you can actually hold your baby, why would you understand the importance of parenthood before that child's born when you can't see them and it's easier to dehumanize them and tell the woman, I'll support whatever decision you make, babe. The Guttmacher Institute in 2005 did a study on reasons U.S. women have abortions. And guess what? They found that the most common reasons are because there's not a man in the picture. He's not there. He's not stepping up. Here are the results from that Guttmacher Institute study in 2005. The reasons most frequently cited were that having a child would interfere with a woman's education, work, or ability to care for dependents. That was 74%. Other reasons were that she could not afford a baby right now, 73%. And that she did not want to be a single mother or was having relationship problems, 48%. What is the common denominator in every single one of those reasons? Well, if, she, if it's interfering with her education, work, or ability to care for dependents, it's because there's not a man there stepping up saying, don't worry about it, I will step up and provide for you and this child. What about the 73% who say they can't afford a baby right now? Well, if there was a man in the picture stepping up and being the provider, she would be able to. And what about the 48% who say they don't want to be a single mother? Yeah, because he's not in the picture or that she was having relationships problems. Yeah, because he's not stepping up, suppressing his selfish desires, and saying, regardless of the relationship problems we have right now, we're gonna work through it because that child needs us. Abortion, the family, the breakdown of society, so much of this traces back to men without chests. Being pro-choice today literally just makes you a man without a chest. It makes you an effeminate, pathetic excuse for a man who rather than rising above his carnal desires and vices puts his selfishness, self-realization and interests as the peak and, re and, and uh, is the peak of everything that matters in his life. This is what breaks down a family. This is what destroys a country is when men abandon their natural duty. So how did we get here? How did we get into this position? It, this didn't, didn't used to always be the case. Now, obviously, men have always done horrible things, just like women do. We're sinners, right? This is, this is just part of being human. I get it. But we used to have a more cohesive social fabric in America, didn't we? And, and men were fine living out their masculine traits in a healthier way. There was always the flip side of the unhealthy way. But we certainly had a, a broader masculine tradition in America. Now we can't even answer the question, what is a man? And if you can't answer that, how could you answer the question, what does it mean to be a man? And what are the duties that come along with being a man? So how did we get here? What happened to our social fabric? Wherein there used to be real shame in a pregnancy out of wedlock, remember? Shotgun weddings, yeah? When a guy got a girl pregnant, circa, what, I don't know, 1930, 1920? early 1900s, late 1800s, then he would move real quick to marry her. Why? He didn't want people to know in his community or city that he had knocked her up before they were married. So they tried to hide it by getting married very quickly and hoping nobody did the math on the timeline. So there was cultural shame associated with not being a man. <laughs> there was cultural shame associated with abandoning your masculine duties to her and to the child that you created. So, hey, let's get married quick so that everyone thinks that I am a good, strong man. We've lost that shame now because we don't even know what it means to be a man. 
Well, there's even, there was even more shame in illegal abortions at one point. And when there was, most men stepped up and married the mother of their child. We have lost that. So this is a huge question, obviously. How did we get here? But let's start with an answer. Let, let's, let's see if we can start with an answer to this question. Ideas shape beliefs, right? The ideas you have, your worldview, they shape your beliefs about the world. Beliefs then drive behavior. We don't behave randomly. We behave based off of deeply held assumptions or ideas or beliefs that we have about the world, about our duties, our responsibilities, or our lack thereof, okay? And decisions have consequences. Let me say that again. Ideas shape beliefs. Beliefs drive decisions or behavior, and decisions have consequences, they either have good consequences, that's a good consequence of making the right decision, or bad consequences. Well, prior to the 1930s, Americans largely shared a belief in a Judeo-Christian worldview, wherein the structure of the world and the idea of objective truths were most reasonably explained by the idea and existence of a God. Even if, you know, 90% of Americans weren't born-again believers filled with the Holy Spirit, we still shared that judeo Christian worldview. We still believe that there were objective truths and that those objective truths were best explained by what? By a God who made the world and, and sort of gave us a conscience that made sense of right and wrong. Well, what happened? Well, enter postmodernism and the popularizing of relativism, which really goes back to the 17th, uh, 16th and 17th centuries with these Enlightenment thinkers who, who sort of presented a different tradition and perspective on truth and the things that we could know. And these people like, like Kant and Hobbes and others who said that truth and what we can know is only based off of the five senses, taste, smell, see, hear, and touch, rather than on also ethics and religion. They said those things don't represent real truth or knowledge. The only things that can be truly known are the things perceived with the five senses. But morality and religion can't be perceived that way, huh? They have to be perceived through your faculties of reason. So you see, ethics, morality, and religion were relegated to the realm of unknowables or mere opinion or feeling. I'm just saying my truth. It's how I feel. You see, this was the beginning of relativism. And this took off more in during the postmodernism period in America. There was a radical shift in how people thought about reality and their own lives that helped catapult us into the sexual revolution. Right? If it feels good, do it. And this was the practical rejection of natural law and objectivism. They said, it's my own micro-narrative that matters. Whatever brings me pleasure and satisfaction is the highest good. Because remember, there is no objective narrative. There is no reality that is true for all people at all times and in all places. We invent our own truth. Well, how can men be expected to stand up against evil if evil is just a perception and a feeling? It's subjective. We decide what's evil, what's good, either as a culture or individually. So therefore, those who stood up against evil, who called some things actually wrong and actually good, were called theocrats. You're imposing your religion on others. You're the real oppressor. And this then created a culture in which being a man and living out your duties and responsibilities was seen as oppressive or toxic rather than living as God intended because truth itself was relegated to the realm of opinion and feeling, which means that morality is entirely subjective and anyone who claims to have truth on any given matter is a bigot.
well, how can you expect men to defend the true, the good, and the beautiful when the true, the good, and the beautiful is not a thing that exists in the real universe? We decide and invent it ourselves out of our own heads. Well, enter cultural prophet C.S. Lewis, who predicted all of this. He had the name of the game. He was calling this far before it took off in the Western world. Lewis saw that the Western world was beginning to reject the natural law tradition of an objective right and wrong. And he saw this rejection being taught in the school systems of the day. Now, obviously, this was in the British, this was uh, in England, right? This was not in America. But he saw where these ideas were headed. He saw relativism taking off in the Western world. Knowing that any society that accepted such a system of education, that rejected the natural law tradition, was doomed to destruction. He saw this happening because if every immoral act I make is me exercising my truth, then there can be no social fabric, there can be no protecting the vulnerable, and there can be no cultural hegemony built around shared ideas, values, and principles. And he wrote about this in 1943 in The Abolition of Man, in the very midst of the popularization of postmodernism and its bastard child called relativism. And the premise of his book, The Abolition of Man, was this. The head rules the belly through the chest. Here's what he meant by this. This is phenomenal if you grasp this, okay? Listen, this will explain our entire predicament in the absence and silence of men in America and the Western world. The head represents intellect, okay? The belly represents appetite. It's the animalistic man. It's the raw appetite and desire, right, to fulfill what I want now, what feels good, whether it's physical hunger or sexual hunger. What, it's fulfilling my every desire now. So the belly is the appetite, the raw animalistic man. The head is the intellect, the rational man. So what's the chest? Values, virtue, morality. That's the chest. So if the head rules the belly through the chest, let's translate that. Intellect and rationality rules raw appetite through morality. It's fascinating, huh? Lewis, cultural prophet, predicted all of this. So what happens when we make men without chests? The intellect rules the appetite with nothing in between. And isn't human beings, aren't human beings very good at justifying their appetites and desires in whatever way they can to fulfill themselves? Oh yes, we can come up with lots of good reasons for why we do what we do. Absent virtue and absent values and absent morality, we can justify anything we do. So being pro-choice is being a man without a chest. Abandoning your parental duties is being a man without a chest. Being a rapist, looking at porn, raping women, abandoning your children is being a man without a chest. You have removed morality, values, and virtue. And this is what relativism attempted to do. Because it says all truth is merely personal. So values and morality are not objective things that exist somewhere in the real world that we can perceive through our, our cognitive abilities and faculties of reason. No, 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 they're all mere opinion. They're all mere feeling. So if truth becomes mere feeling, then I can intellectually justify whatever I want to satisfy my appetite. That's how we got here. Ideas shape beliefs. Beliefs drive behaviors and decisions. 
and decisions have consequences. So when you start with the idea that all truth is relative, you lead to the belief of relativism, which is I can do whatever I want because truth is personal, which leads to the decisions of what? Abortions, absent fathers, sleeping around, not fulfilling your duties, sex trafficking, pornography industry. You see? <clears throat> Here's how Lewis put this, just to quote him one more time. The chest is the indispensable liaison officer between cerebral man and visceral man, the stomach. For by his intellect, he is mere spirit, and by his appetite, mere animal. So the chest is the liaison officer between the rational man and the animal man. Such is the tragic comedy of our situation, Lewis says. We continue to clamor for those very qualities that we are rendering impossible. You can hardly open a periodical without coming across the statement that what our civilization needs is more drive or self-sacrifice or creativity. In a sort of ghastly simplicity, we remove the organ and demand the function. We make men without chess and expect of them virtue and enterprise. We laugh at honor and are shocked to find traitors in our midst. We castrate and bid the geldings be fruitful. Castrate what? Castrate the chest. We make men without chess and expect of them virtue and enterprise. Virtue is based off of truth, which is based off an objective moral order. But you've denied that there's any such objective moral order. So don't complain about how there's not enough honor in our midst. Where are the honorable men? Where are the upright men? You've removed the very thing, the very organ that would cause them to be moral. So you can't demand the function of the organ that you just surgically removed. That's relativism. That's the consequences of it. That's what it has done to the modern man. That's why men are absent. That's why they're gone. This is the abolition of man, the removal of the chest. The idea of relativism has shaped the beliefs of generations, and those beliefs drive behaviors, which have consequences. But there's an irony, isn't there, to the silent and absent fathers in the abortion debate, as Lewis mentioned, that we scream and cry for more drive or self-sacrifice or creativity from men but we've removed the organ that makes that necessary. And you see this in the abortion debate as well. The pro-choice movement, which is arguably the worst consequence of the sexual revolution, amen, and was fueled by postmodernism and relativism, they scream for men to be silent, remember? Because it's a woman's body, shut up, men. But then those same people mourn for the fatherless generation and absentee fathers and the effect that it has on born children. Obama saying, oh, it was hard not having a father. And so many of the issues our country are facing stem from a lack and absence of fathers in the home. So we mourn about the consequences of men being chestless men while we tell men to be chestless men and stand by those they impregnate if she decides to murder the child you helped create. We remove the organ and demand the function. We make men without virtue, and ex we make men without chess and expect of them virtue and enterprise. We castrate them and then ask them to be fruitful, to bear fruit in the culture of death, which you help create by removing their organ. Hmm. They say, where are the men? They complain about toxic masculinity while fueling toxic masculinity by telling men that they can fulfill their every appetite and desire because truth is relative. They demand the removal of the organ and then demand the chest and demand the function of the organ. 
How do we fix this problem? Well, we're going to answer that in just one second and look at how we can fix the problem of a relativism and its bad fruit, and we'll look at what men can actually do. But first, if you like this show and want to hear more great content and commentary from the front lines of the abortion wars and the pro-life movement, then head on over to patreon.com forward slash unaborted and become a patron of the show. Check out our tiers. Listen, your support helps us increase the production value, the number of episodes, the number of guests we have on the show, and begin taking our content to the streets and discussing these ideas in a conversational context to change minds, change hearts, and save lives. And some of these tiers and perks that you might select to support the show um, will give you a little reward in return for supporting the show. Uh, and we really appreciate that. We'll be right back with a whole lot more. So how do we fix the problem? How do we restore the chest to men? Well, let's look at some good examples for the current generation. Pro-life, <clears throat> excuse me, pro-life individuals, those of a Judeo-Christian worldview, those who believe in the value of the unborn, the goodness of marriage, and the importance of married parenting of your biological children, those of you who believe all those things, live out what you believe, <laughs> right? You have good ideas, which lead to right beliefs, which drive good behavior and decisions. Live in the truth. Live not by lies, but live in the truth. If the family and the breakdown of the family is what led to this problem in the first place, then let's rebuild it. Yeah, that's a great first step for us to fix this problem is you, the pro-life Christian, or those of a Judeo-Christian tradition, are, you know, are our Jewish friends, even though they're yet to acknowledge Christ, they believe so much of what I'm saying as well right now. They believe in the goodness of marriage, the only definition of marriage. A man and a woman married for life, committed to one another <clears throat> for the rearing of children and the benefit and flourishing of society. The story of your life and your thriving family will tell a better story and narrative than the story of the fatherless generation. So for the moms who listen to this show who feel like they don't do enough because they're so busy at home and they want to do more in the pro-life movement, you are doing the most important work. Amen? You are rebuilding the society where it has been broken down and dismantled. And the statistics bear this out, right? We know this. All of this. And we'll do another episode maybe. We'll go through all the statistics. There's so many studies. I've been bearing this out for generations. And like I said, the left acknowledges this. They acknowledge that children fare best when raised by their married biological parents in a low-conflict marriage and home until radical leftists or LGBTQ activists or gay parents or, or whatever, until they want a baby. And they'll, they'll buy one woman's eggs and then they'll buy someone else's sperm and then they'll rent someone else's womb and then they'll say, give me that baby. And suddenly the left is silent on acknowledging the stats that they always, always acknowledged otherwise, which is that that's bad for children. Um, right, so they've acknowledged this. We know the studies, statistics, and we know experientially when we look at children, right? Don't you have friends and family members? Haven't you seen the societal and moral costs that children are forced to pay and the struggles they endure when the family breaks down? Of course. So live a better truth. Live a better story. Tell a better story. That's what we can do in the current generation right now to fix this problem of men without chests. It's us as men, living as real men, that believe in real good and real evil, real truth and real falsehood, and who live in the truth and defend the true, the good, and the beautiful, and fight the evil, the wicked, 
and those who seek to oppress the most vulnerable. But how do we fix this problem for future generations? Well, one word, education, right? The academy is sort of a cultural crystal ball for the next generation, right? The philosophy of today's academy becomes the gauge of the culture's philosophy 20 or 30 years later. And this is why leftists have been filling in the colleges for decades, right? And then their education really just becomes the liturgy of an alternative religion, the religion of secular progressivism, which has its own strange religious precepts and principles that they then indoctrinate into the next generation of radical secular leftists, even though they're functioning very religiously, in order to propagate their ideas in the society. And because those ideas lead to beliefs which drive behavior, here we are. Right? So we need to retake education. Education got us into this mess. Education will help get us back out. Now, I don't necessarily mean purely the secular universities. I, I think it may be very difficult for Christians to retake those institutions, though we should try. But the universities taught and normalized postmodernism and relativism, which led to the abolition of man. So we need to retake the fountainhead from where these ideas come from, right? Because there will be a fountainhead. There will be culturally formative institutions that promulgate these ideas. The question is not, will these ideas be promulgated or pushed by someone? The question is by who, right? And who will be in those institutions that are, that are liturgizing or catechizing the next generation into their worldview? We should try to retake those institutions. Can we? Is it too late? Has God abandoned America? Has he walked out of the room? <laughs> Is there no more providence of God that would bring us back into those institutions? I don't know. But regardless, we need to retake education. We need to come up with alternative forms of education. And the last year and a half, the sort of COVID scamdemic has led to a massive exodus from much of these culturally formative educational institutions. And you should be grateful for that. Probably the only good thing that has happened in children being forced to be at home and not in schools is that they were not in schools. <laughs> and there were a lot of other negative consequences for the children, and I mourn that. But at least they weren't being indoctrinated by radical leftists, right, who understand the, the formative power of the institution that they are in. So that might be one of the best things in the last year and a half. We need to have a massive exodus back to homeschooling, back to parents retaking education, because if children have a natural claim to their mother and father, then the mother and father are the best individuals to educate them into virtue, into values, and against vice, and, and in the tradition of stewardship and responsibility for the country we've been, we've been given and the duty to evangelize our faith in the society. Charter schools, right? Retaking private schools because most of the private Christian schools are pretty bad. And I know this because I'm the product of one and I've seen the kind of rot and moral rot that is in our Christian colleges. So we need to retake these institutions and we need to pursue alternative forms of education to fight back for the future generations so that when we are gone, our posterity will fulfill their role as men with chests. And of course, you can apply this to women as well because the chest just represents virtue and honor, right? But because men are called to be leaders in ways that women aren't as much, we need to restore that virtue to the posterity of our men. So what can men help do to end abortion? Let's get practical. We've talked about the problems, how we got here, and maybe some ways that we can fight back and fix the problem. But what can men do now to help end abortion? We're reaping the consequences of abandoning this battle as men who should have never allowed the murder of the unborn in the first place. How do we fight back and now? Well, firstly, quite simply, this might seem like pretty simple and self-evident, but listen, men can have nothing to do with the evil of abortion, period. Stop it. Do not sleep around. If you do, though you shouldn't, 
You should sleep with your wife who you marry. If you do, and you impregnate a woman, marry her, step up, and parent the child. Okay, men can have nothing to do with the evil of abortion. And we need to help other men to step up as well. Here's a great little tool for you to do that. Keep a short clip of abortion victim photography on your phone. And um, I will provide a link in the show notes for that clip so you can watch it and download it. Keep it on your phone and gently offer to show people in conversations on abortion the reality of abortion. Gently ask them if you can show them the consequences and results of what they support and expose the horror of abortion. That's one simple way that you can help other men to step up. But we must have nothing to do with the evil of abortion. Secondly, encourage women and remind them, particularly if they're pro-choice, that abortion is not a tool of feminism, but of male chauvinism. Huh? Remind women who think that abortion is reproductive health care, and they think that it's their right if they choose it, remind them that abortion is not a tool of feminism, but a tool of chauvinism. Abortion allows men to treat women as sexual objects used for their enjoyment while avoiding all responsibilities that come with sex. And ironically, because truth is self-evident and eternity is written on the heart of man, right? And we come from God, and sometimes we, we see glimpses of God's truth, even though we've shut off the heavens and we've shut ourselves to him. Sometimes the left realizes this. Have you seen the articles recently from pro-aborts talking about the Texas law, right, that's going to protect a lot of babies and ban abortions after six weeks? And they're saying, well, if you're going to do this to women, you should also require men legally to step up and support the child financially. <laughs> gotcha, pro-lifers. And pro-lifers are like, yeah, <laughs> totally. We should totally do that. We've been saying that for a long time. Okay, so remind them that abortion is not a tool of feminism, but of male chauvinism. Abortion is the favorite tool of sex traffickers, pimps, and playboys, right? Because they can take the women who get pregnant to go kill their babies so that they can keep using them and employing them and making money off of them, either through the pornography industry or through actual sex trafficking. And of course, sometimes and very often those things intersect quite often. And you can look at live action investigative videos where you know they have, they're posing as pimps and sex traffickers and they're asking Planned Parenthood, hey, Hey, I got, I'm a sex worker. I got this girl. She needs an abortion. And Planned Parenthood complies with it every time. They're happy to do it. So secondly, encourage women that abortion is not a tool of feminism but of male chauvinism. While women uh, cheer for abortions, they're participating in their own oppression. And they're allowing an institution that already dehumanizes them um, to continue to do so more. Thirdly, train for the battle. Yeah? If you're ready to hit the battlefield, and I did break your heart and boil your blood in this episode, and you're ready to go, don't run out into the battlefield without any weapons and look like a freaking idiot who gets mowed down by the enemy because you didn't train, you didn't sharpen your sword, you didn't load up your guns. Train for the battle. If you're not involved in full-time or part-time pro-life activism, you likely have never equipped yourself to defend the unborn and engage with those in your life who support abortion rights. And I know this. I get the comments from the show. I get comments when I speak. People say, Seth, I don't know what to say. Right. Listen to the show. Subscribe to this show. Okay. Listen to it every week. And in a few months, you'll be a pro-life ninja flipping around, demolishing abortion arguments wherever you find it. Sign up for my newsletter at SethGruber.com and read pro-life books to equip yourself to train for battle. Fifthly, give generously to pro-life organizations who fight abortion full-time. Listen, there's, there are those who fight and there are those who help those who fight. And if you're not in position to get involved in a meaningful, substantial, full-time or part-time way, support those who do. Train for battle in your own life, but support those who are doing this full-time. Help others help the unborn, yeah? To take back life, to get men back involved, to be the stewards and the watchmen 
of society. And lastly, start a pro-life ministry at your church. Don't wait for favorable legislation to protect the pre-born. Go contend for it. Go get godly men and women elected, absolutely. But don't wait for favorable legislation to protect the pre-born. You protect the pre-born. These are the posterity of America. They're your babies. They're our country's babies. And you are a chestless, pathetic excuse for a man if you stand by and allow the murder of the preborn through shallow phrases and talking points like, I don't want to impose my beliefs. I'm personally pro-life, but other people should be able to kill babies. Abandon that bigotry. Be a man. Step up and act now in your local communities to protect the preborn. Start a pro-life ministry at your church. Go to Love Life. Dot org. Go start a love life chapter at your church. Bring me to your church to speak. Go to SethGruber.com. Send me an email. We'll get into your church. We'll fire up the men. I'm speaking at a, uh, a men's breakfast here shortly in the next few days. Get, get me in to, to talk to men. Let's fire them up. Let's make them the defenders and protectors of the most vulnerable. Organize sidewalk counseling and a weekly prayer team outside of your local abortion center and try to engage with the women walking in there. And if that guy is going with him, you talk to that guy. You engage with him. You tell him to step up. You tell him that that's his child. That child needs him right now. And then advertise you and your church's willingness to provide housing, financial support, or adoption to pregnant women in your city contemplating abortion. In short, take back life. We're living behind enemy lines now, and degenerate, chestless men have been ruling in our culturally formative institutions for decades because we have removed the organ and demanded the function. We make men without chess and expect of them virtue and enterprise. We laugh at honor and are shocked to find traitors in our midst. We castrate and bid the geldings be fruitful. Here's the question for you. Do you want to be a gelding? Or do you want to be a frickin' stallion who steps up and fulfills your role as a protector and defender of the least of these? It's time to stand. And if we don't stand now, we may not be able to stand in a free manner in the very near future as chessless men continue to decay American society and build their oligarchy, which is built on the murdered bodies of unborn babies. It's time to step up. Thanks for joining me today. Head on over to iTunes, Spotify, YouTube. Give the show a rating and review. Let us know what you think. We really appreciate it. If you want to learn more and engage with me online, head on over to sethgruber.com to book me for an event, to see my speaking schedule if you want to hear me speak live and local, or to sign up for my newsletter. Thank you so much. Until next week, I'm Seth Gruber, and this is Unaborted.